0: So good evening and welcome to the 2017 Darwin College Lectures. It's very good to see so many people here, rather than uh, viewing the competing event that's going on the other side of the Atlantic. (laughs) This uh, is the start of the 32nd series of Darwin College Lectures. They're very much part of the spirit of the college. Each lecture series covers a wide range of topics. and. Of course, our fellows and students are inquiring into every aspect of knowledge that you can possibly imagine. This year's theme is extremes, and it's worryingly appropriate, although it was selected two years ago. Extremes means extremes. (laughs) Good extremes, bad extremes, and to begin this series, extreme weather. Now, you can probably see that on the stage this morning we have, you know, quite uh, a large map. It's a giant circumpolar Arctic map. It has been produced by the Canada-UK Foundation in partnership with the Royal Canadian Geographic Society to show Canada's extent and diversity. This, their Arctic Alive project starts next week. So this is the first time this map has been displayed in the UK we have a special preview this evening. It certainly shows the extent of of the ice. Now, the poles, the Arctic and Antarctic, are, are very important. They sound an alarm. I wondered perhaps whether Shakespeare was prescient in his Winter's Tale stage direction. Should the command be, or is it about to be, Exit humanity pursued by bear. Shakespeare might have been prefer- referring to King James I's polar bear cubs. The UK Natural Environment Research Council, NERC, has a base in Kingsfjord, Kyongsfjorden, in Spitsbergen. It's the same King, James. You can see the ice floating out there. The Arctic is in trouble. The discovery of the ozone hole by the British Antarctic Survey scientists in 1985 led directly to the 1987 Montreal Treaty. That's humanity's single most effective action to avoid the tragedy of the commons. Not only did the treaty protect ozone, it's also because CFCs are potent greenhouse gases It's also arguably the most effective action so far taken to reduce anthropogenic global warming. Now, Emily Chakra here and sitting in in front of us is an applied mathematician and climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey, and she's a Darwin College fellow also. She was awarded an OBE in the 2016 New Year's Honours for services to science and the public communication of science. Her most recent publication for a public or a general audience uh, is out next week. It's co-authored with the Prince of Wales and Tony Juniper and it's entitled The Ladybird Expert Guide to Climate Change. Ladybirds are no longer just children's books. I'm delighted to welcome Emily to speak on extreme weather tonight.
1: So, Master, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you this evening and to open this year's Darwin Lecture Series. I'm going to be talking about extreme weather and i thought i would start with this this was yesterday's new york times and if you read the headline it says um, for the third year the earth in 2016 hit record heat and uh, as mary uh, mentioned it's a slightly surreal world that we're living in at the moment that this lecture this evening is coinciding with the inauguration of a a president of the United States who doubts the um, seriousness of this result. Now, this um, graphic here shows how temperatures on Earth, averaged over the surface of the Earth, have been increasing over the last 150 years or so. You'll see, as time goes by, the temperature's steadily increasing out towards this 1.5 degree increase in temperature compared to Victorian times. Now, that increase will let the video run again, so you can see again. Um, that increase is seen this year's temperature being almost 1.1 degrees centigrade um, above those pre, uh, pre-industrial times. And it's not just temperature that we've seen varying. At the top here, um, you can see a graph of that temperature increase from 1850 through to the present day, temperatures almost uh, reaching one degree centigrade or warmer. At the bottom, you can see one of the other implications of that increase in temperature, which is an increase in the sea level of the oceans. As the temperature of the atmosphere increases, the temperature of the oceans has also slowly been increasing. And that has has a number of effects. First of all, the oceans, when the water warms up, they literally expand and that increases the sea level. But in addition, the polar regions and other ice around the world has also been melting, contributing an additional um, water into the sea, further raising the sea levels what we've seen is that about 90% of the additional heat that's accumulated in the atmosphere over the last decades has gone into the oceans it takes a very long time for the oceans to come into equilibrium with the atmosphere partly because the oceans overturn so slowly so some parts of the ocean last saw the surface of the atmosphere uh, the, the surface at the atmosphere many hundreds of years ago, even up to a 1,000 years ago. So it takes a very long time for the whole system to come into equilibrium. And that means that the seas will continue to rise for many, many decades, centuries even, into the future before the whole system reaches an equilibrium. Now, I myself um, have spent time in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica, measuring the changes that we've observed in the ocean. And in the Southern Ocean, we've seen a warming throughout the depths of the ocean um, over the last um, decades. In total, seas have risen by more than 20 centimeters. And there are many other indicators of a warming world that we could look at, and I could show you the data of, um, be that a change in snow cover, or um, a change in the extent of glaciers around the world. But one of the most striking indicators, and it's very um, pertinent that we have a map of the Arctic here tonight, one of the most striking indicators has been the change in the extent of sea ice in the Arctic. This graph here shows um, the variation throughout the year of sea ice in recent years. So there's a seasonal cycle so that during the winter months there's a greater amount of sea ice and then that decreases through the summer as it melts to increase again. But what you can see is that year on year we've been seeing less and less sea ice throughout the year. The red curve on here is this last year, 2016. The gray shading shows the average, um, and one standard deviation around the average for the period 1980 to 2010. If you look month by month throughout this last year, you will see that almost every month has been the smallest or one of the smallest extents of sea ice in the Arctic. And the year as a whole has come out as being the smallest extent during our records. Now, this image here shows a satellite picture of the Arctic sea ice extent in September, which is the end of the melt season. And I've shown two images from exactly the same day of the year, the 15th of September. And the first image shows the 15th of September, 1992. And the second image shows the 15th of September, 2012, which is the year that's most recently seen the smallest September sea ice extent. The area of sea ice is colored in pink, and you can see the difference, but for those who are not used to looking at maps of the Arctic, this difference in extent equates to the cumulative total of the area of the United Kingdom, France, Spain, Germany, and Italy put together. Two million square kilometers. It's a vast area of ice. And it has vast implications, that scale of change, for the whole hemisphere and the weather systems around the hemisphere. I have um, a PhD student at the moment who's studying this in detail and is finding that depending on where in the Arctic the sea ice is lost from, different impacts on weather systems around the whole of the northern hemisphere occur, even down as far as temperature changes in Cairo associated with that. And you can very easily conceptualize why this might make a big difference to weather systems. When there's ice there, that's a very reflective surface. When that ice melts, um, you're left with a much darker colored ocean, which has a very significant impact on the whole physics of the system. And again, this animation shows how the sea ice has been changing in volume, not just in extent, but also the depth of the sea ice over recent years. And you can see, as these circles become ever smaller, the ever smaller extent of sea ice and and the depth of sea ice, so the total volume of sea ice over recent years. Now, I spent um, time in the Arctic, And a few years ago, I went to visit the Canadian Arctic, and in particular, a place that's over here, um, Iqaluit, and I think we can zoom in just so you can see where it is, um, on Baffin Island. Here we go, showing the real map. Um, And one of the things that was most interesting to me when I went to visit um, the Canadian Arctic, unlike the Antarctic, where I've also spent time, the Canadian Arctic is actually inhabited. both the polar regions, but particularly the Arctic, have seen very much greater change than the rest of the world. The temperature increase in the Arctic has been about twice that of the global average. And that means that the people living in the Arctic have seen very great change. So in particular, I met a wonderful lady called Mary Ellen Thomas, who comes from the Nunavut Research Institute. And she said that everyone who lives in Iqaluit has been noticing the changes that have been occurring. She talked of the fact that she could now hear robins singing on the roof of her house, and never before had they had robins in the Arctic. She also talked about how people had uh, now been able to fish Atlantic salmon in the bay here, where normally Atlantic salmon live 400 miles away. And she made this rather um, poignant quote. She said that, that we're living the change, and it's as if a friend that we could trust is suddenly acting strangely. And somehow, having this personal insight into the changes that, was, that are occurring is almost more powerful than just looking at the raw data itself. It brings the data to life, and it makes it very clear that these changes are things that are affecting real people's lives and will continue to affect real people's lives into the future. Now, Mariella mentioned some of the changes in um, wildlife that she herself had noticed, and particularly for species that live in cold parts of the world, Changes in the physical environment have a major impact. Many of the species in the polar regions are incredibly well adapted to the very cold temperatures in their polar regions, but that makes them very sensitive to changes in temperatures. And it's also the case that if you're living in the polar regions, you're already in the coldest place, so there's no ability for you to be able to move anywhere cooler um, as the temperatures warm. In other parts of the world we're seeing species either moving um, up mountains or further um, towards the poles in terms of latitude but if you're already in the polar regions that's not an option available to you so some of the species that I'm showing here um, are some of those species exceptionally well adapted to cold temperatures Antarctic ice fish that essentially have an antifreeze running around their bodies and giant sea spiders. There are many um, of the marine life in the polar regions that take gigantic forms um, that are particularly adapted to the cold temperatures. These species are particularly vulnerable to temperature increase. And we're also seeing many other wildlife species. Emperor penguins, just one example, um, who are particularly vulnerable to changes in temperatures. And these, these are not just restricted to animals from the polar regions. Um, there are also many other animals that we might care about: leatherback turtles, um, salmon, uh, and species of, of um, plants and animals that are that are similarly vulnerable to changes in climate. And indeed, we've seen the impacts around the world on all continents of the world of changes to the biological systems. Because the biological systems are so interconnected through food webs if one species is affected um, through the changes in climate then that feeds through the entire food web those changes can be due to changes in habitat that are due, uh, that are a consequence of the changing climate or they can be due to changes in the seasons and the very fine synchronicity of different species due to that seasonal timing can be entirely displaced when those seasons change. Now, if we could turn closer to home, the major impact of extreme weather that we have seen in recent years in the UK has been a series of severe floods that have occurred in 2000, in 2007, in 2010, and again, again in 2014, we each year saw um, severe floods affecting different parts of the world. This is an image taken from the severe floods that we saw in autumn 2000. um, And very careful studies have looked at whether or not the chances of having those sort of floods um, have increased as a result of the climate change that we've already observed. And for these particular floods in autumn 2000, um, it was found that indeed the chances of having floods like this had increased as a result of the climate change we've observed to date. And in part, that's because a warmer atmosphere holds more water, which can then rain down in more heavy, intense rainfall events. Some of these flooding events have shown just how vulnerable we are as a country to flooding. In the 2007 floods, there was an electricity substation just outside Gloucester that powers half a million homes and a sewage treatment facility that um, provides fresh water to very many more, that electricity substation came within inches of going offline due to the floods. And if it had gone offline, it was anticipated that those half a million homes would have been without power for many, many weeks. And then in 2014, you might recall that the train line to Devon and Cornwall got washed away during the storms and was closed for several weeks at a reported cost of £1.2 billion to the economy. And it's just been reported recently that uh, Network Rail are planning to rebuild that train line at a cost of some um, millions of pounds. The UK's not been the only place that's been affected by severe weather and uh, perhaps the uh, incoming President of the United States might like to recall the uh, hurricane that happened in 2012 in New York, Hurricane Sandy. It's estimated to have cost the United States economy 66 billion dollars and resulted in over a hundred deaths in the U.S. alone. That was back in 2012 and actually New York is still to this day trying to recover from the storm surge that um, was associated with um, with that hurricane. The subway system, if you might recall, was particularly affected. Large sections of it were flooded and it's recently been announced that one of the major subway lines um, which more, almost half a million people use each day across New York, is going to have to close for 18 months in order to repair the damage that was done um, during that storm surge. Now, it turns out that if you look around the world, many, many, many capital cities are located in coastal regions for good historical reasons. And increasingly, the large megacities that are being built in Asia are all also in coastal regions. Those cities are all incredibly vulnerable to sea level rise, which, as we've seen in an earlier plot, is increasingly occurring. London is protected from flooding by the Thames barrier, for now at least. But many other cities, it would be very difficult um, to try to protect, not least New York, in fact, um, through a similar sort of defense system. So, we're seeing changes occurring around the world. That naturally leads to the question, why are those changes occurring? There are four graphs that I want to show you here, showing changes that have occurred since 1850 through to the present day. The top one is the global population. There's been a six-fold increase in global population since 1850. And at the same time as that population has increased, global GDP has increased, our prosperity has increased, a hundred-fold increase, um, huge increase in the well-being of many people associated with this, it's brought huge good. There's also been a huge increase in the amount of energy use, a 20-fold increase. Much of this directly related to our increased prosperity. And we've also been having a significant impact on our land. This is the amount of tropical forest area, there's been more than a 25% reduction. Now, all these changes have been associated with a change in the composition of our atmosphere. So, if we look at data for the last few decades for the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the amount of methane in the atmosphere, and the amount of nitrous oxides in the atmosphere, you can see very clear increases in each of these um, gases. Carbon dioxide, primarily from the burning of fossil fuels, although the change in land use has also had a contributing factor. Methane and nitrous oxide, um, closely associated with agricultural practices, and also other um, industrial processes. Now each of these gases we know has a strong greenhouse effect. So as you increase the amount of these gases in the atmosphere, That leads to a warming of the atmosphere. It's not the only thing that affects the temperature of the Earth. If we look in detail at this data, which is from 1880 through to the present day, there are a number of different reconstructions from different centers, the Americans and the Met Office um, data both shown on here. But this shows the year-to-year temperature variation, the plot that I already showed you that was on the front cover of the New York You can see that there's been this steady increase of about 1 degree centigrade over this time period, but you can also see there are a lot of ups and downs and there's been some periods that have been slightly warmer, other other periods slightly cooler. And One of the things that we try to do as scientists is to try and um, dissect what these different ups and downs are caused by and what the dominant cause of this increase in temperature has been. And I wanted to explain to you just a little bit about how we go about doing that and how we distinguish whether or not the temperature increase has been caused by one thing or another thing. One of the things that we can do is look at the signature of temperature change, not just at the surface, but throughout the atmosphere, because you expect to get a different pattern of temperature change according to what the cause is. And you can use that pattern to essentially find the fingerprint of what the change actually has been. This is showing the north pole to the south pole, and the top was uh, the bottom uh, 20, 30 kilometers in the atmosphere, and the colours show the pattern of temperature change that you expect through different um, forces of the temperature change. So it is the case that it, the sun varies its output particularly on an 11-year cycle and that has a modest impact on the temperature and you expect this particular pattern of change associated with that. A large volcanic eruption puts a lot of dust into the atmosphere and that similarly can affect the temperature over short um, time periods, a few years after that volcanic eruption and this is the temperature change that you expect from that. Other pollution has a different signal still. And the greenhouse gases have a very clear and distinctive signal of a warming at lower levels and a cooling above that. And by looking at these different signals, we can distinguish which um, of these different things have been affecting the temperature. This is the observed warming that we've seen over the last 50 years. And this is the contribution that we think um, came from all of man-made pollution to that warming, and when we break that down into the greenhouse gases, um, we think that the greenhouse gases actually over-explain the amount of observed warming with some cooling coming from other um, sources of pollution, soot in particular. If we add in the other forcings, the natural forcings coming from volcanoes and changes in the sun then we can see that they contribute a very small amount compared to these other sources of pollution. And that's led um, scientists to conclude that it is extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the 20th century. Now, you can also ask, well, but hasn't the climate always changed? How do we know that this current change is any different to the changes that have always occurred over hundreds of thousands of years? Now, I think one of the clearest pieces of evidence that tell us about that are the ice cores that my colleagues drill in Antarctica. This is a slice through an ice core. And what happens is that as the snow falls in Antarctica, It traps tiny bubbles of air with it. The snow falls layer upon layer. And that means that as we drill down through the ice, it's like going back in time. And we're able to recover the actual ancient air that used to be in the atmosphere hundreds of thousands of years ago. It's really quite an incredible museum of the past climate. What we can do is bring those um, samples back to Cambridge, where we analyze them. We can analyze the actual air to determine the carbon dioxide content in the past. And we can also look at the isotopes, the different chemical forms of the oxygen in the water. And that gives us an indication of what the temperature was in the past. This is a a graph of the carbon dioxide levels over the last 800,000 years. And just to give you some orientation here, um, this is the last ice age right here. Well, this is the present day here. This is the last ice age. And then this is all the way back 800,000 years. If you go to the British Museum in London, one of the earliest objects, um, a hand axe from East Africa, comes from about a million years ago, just over here. Neanderthals were sharing the earth with us until sometime around about here. 200,000 years ago. So this covers really, you know, the whole of human history and prehistory. And it also encompasses very, very different climate states. So if we go to the last ice age, sea levels were some 130 meters below where they are today. If we go back to the last warmer periods we believe that sea levels were probably somewhere between 5 and 10 meters higher than they are today. Very, very different states of the world are encapsulated within this diagram. And if we put on where current carbon dioxide levels are, they're up here, 400 parts per million. And I think that this shows more clearly than anything else that there is a natural cycle on the Earth of climatic changes and that the current change is vastly outside that natural cycle. So back to the implications of these changes. There's now an annual report that is put out looking back over the previous year to explain the extreme weather events that have been occurring around the world, and to ask the question whether or not those weather events have been um, increased in likelihood of occurring as a result of the climate change we've observed to date. And the sort of ways in which we go about doing that as scientists are, um, in particular, to use computer simulations. Within a computer simulation world, we can run a world in which climate change has happened, and run a world in which climate change hasn't happened and look at the likelihood of different extreme events happening in those two different commuter simulation worlds to see what the increased risk is. And I thought I would talk you through a few of the examples um, from the last year or so um, and the extreme events that have occurred to, to answer some of these questions. Now, if we look back into 2015, which is the last year that has been analysed, we had a very severe heat wave in July 2015. Now, I remember this particularly well because I was more than nine months pregnant at the time. Um, July the 1st turned out to be the hottest July day that has ever occurred. London hit 36.7 degrees centigrade, which is 98 degrees Fahrenheit. As I say, I know this particularly well because I became dehydrated, got admitted down at Addenbrooke's because it was clear that baby was under stress, and Eloise was born in rather more dramatic circumstances than I might have um, hoped for in the early hours of the morning um, subsequent to that. Now, there's since been a study looking at that heat wave that occurred in 2015. It's the case that um, heat waves in this country have become substantially more likely as a result of the climate change that we've already observed. But what was interesting about the heat wave in July 2015 was it wasn't simply the fact that the temperatures were higher. It was also the fact that some of the conditions that led to that heat wave, in particular the amount of moisture and the land across Europe as a consequence of the rainfall, that additionally contributed to the uh, risk of having such an extreme heat wave. So there are a number of ways in which climate change increased the risk of having um, a heat wave of that nature. We've seen repeated heat waves, along with repeating flood, flooding, we've seen repeated heat waves occurring in the United Kingdom and across Europe in 2003, 2010, and then in 2015. And there have been studies that have looked back in 2003 when we had a very severe heat wave. There were some 70,000 deaths that is estimated to have been um, brought forward premature deaths as a consequence of that heat wave across Europe. People have tried to say, well, what does that mean in terms of how many deaths could be attributed to climate change? And it's estimated that more than 60 deaths that occurred in in London and perhaps 500 or more deaths in Paris can be directly attributed um, to climate change. If we turn to other parts of the world, there have been extended droughts in Texas, um, peaked in 2011, cost the um, Texan economy billions of dollars, particularly in the agricultural sector. It's estimated um, that the likelihood of having an extreme heat wave in Texas has significantly increased as a consequence of climate change. A similar story can be said about China, where there have been a series of heat waves. In Ethiopia, there was a severe drought in 2015. It didn't make the headlines perhaps as much as it should have done. It was um, estimated to have been um, as bad as the droughts of the 1980s that did hit the headlines much more, but Ethiopia is in a a political state that's um, more robust, and so um, it was... Uh, less of a humanitarian crisis than back in the 80s. Nevertheless, 10 million people required humanitarian assistance at that time. Um, And again, it's estimated that climate change contributed um, to an increased risk of having such a drought. And throughout the Middle East, there's been um, a severe drought that's uh, occurred, um, particularly in 2014, record-breaking temperatures, again, estimated to be more likely as a consequence of the climate change we've seen to date. And that, in particular, complicated the food and water provision from refugees from the conflicts in that part of the world. So, so much for now. What about the future? What I'm showing you here is um, the temperatures Again, the average over the surface of the Earth for the last 1,000 years. So if you go, this is back where Cambridge University was founded, 1208. Temperatures reasonably steady over the subsequent 800 years. An increase of about 1 degree centigrade over the last 100, 150 years. And these are the projections into the future. These are projections based on computer simulations, so um, there's some degree of uncertainty. And the reason that you see um, these bands is because that's trying to indicate um, the level of uncertainty associated with those projections. And there are two projections that I've shown here. The temperature increase that we expect over the rest of this century is critically dependent on what we do as a society in terms of the amount of pollution we put into the atmosphere. If we um, do nothing to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases, then we're likely to follow the red future. If we do a lot, there's hope that we will follow the blue future. I spend a lot of time looking at graphs like this, and so I like to remind myself that these two futures are futures that people will actually live through. This is my other daughter, Genevieve, and this is my grandmother, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago but lived into her 90s. If Genevieve lives into her 90s, that will be the end of this century, and so she's either going to live through a blue future, which is not too dissimilar to the worlds in which we've lived through, or she's going to live through a red future, which would be really quite different. And I want to just talk you through now a little bit about what those two futures might hold. So in particular, I want to talk through a number of different categories. As you increase the temperature, the risks of different things occurring under different um, aspects of the um, Earth system increase. So let's first look at unique and threatened systems. There are a number of unique systems around the world, not least coral reefs, which are very susceptible to increases in temperature. And as a whole, looking across the world in terms of unique and threatened systems, it is estimated that even if we do a lot, substantially reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases, the temperature increase that is almost inevitable, will still put these systems at high risk. Even very modest temperature increase will threaten the coral reefs of the world. And those coral reefs are not just threatened by the increase in temperature, they're also threatened by the other effect of increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. About 30% of our emissions of carbon dioxide each year are taken up by the ocean. That acts as a buffer, meaning that the amount of carbon dioxide that stays in the atmosphere, contributing to warming, is less. But the downside of it is that the oceans become more acidic, and particularly corals are very susceptible to an increase in acidity of the oceans. Overall, um, if we look at... um, plant and animal species, it's estimated that if we were within uh, one of these red futures and temperatures hit four degrees centigrade warmer um, than today, 25% of mammals and half of all plant-based species may lose half their suitable habitat. Even under this blue future, under the do-a-lot future, half of those impacts are likely to remain. Let's turn to the next category, extreme weather events. We've spoken quite a bit about the extreme weather events that we know that have already occurred around the world. I'm doing a lot of work now um, to try and use latest data science techniques to produce forecasts to help inform building of resilience in different locations around the world. One place we're particularly looking at is Cairo. There was a big heat wave in August 2015, that was associated with scores of deaths in Cairo. Cairo is a, country, uh, is a, is a city that has rather poor air conditioning. Um, that means that when you have exceptionally high temperatures, um, particularly elderly people are very susceptible to those high temperatures, and so there's a question of how can um, the cities evolve in to build more resilience to such extreme conditions. If we look at um, the distribution and the global aggregate impacts, then we find across the world um, significant risks from different forms of change. Just this week, the government, the UK government, produced its climate change risk assessment and rated the top risks that it perceives for the UK over the coming years. And this is them. The number one risk might come as no surprise given the events of recent years, is estimated to come from flooding. Similarly, severe risks associated with health and well-being from high temperatures, extreme heat waves, risks of shortages of supply of water for public agriculture, energy generation and industry, risks to biodiversity, ecosystems and soils risk to food production, both domestically and because we live in a globally interconnected world through climate change occurring elsewhere. Indeed, we've seen repeated incidents in recent years of climate um, events, severe droughts wildfires or others affecting um, food prices around the world. And then finally, risks associated with new and emerging pests, diseases and new invasive species. And one of the critical things to try and better understand from a scientific point of view is the correlations between these different um, effects. In 2010 there was a very um, severe heat wave in Russia, wildfires in Russia, and there was also severe flooding in Pakistan. And it has been analysed that it was essentially the same meteorological conditions that contributed to these two very different effects in different parts of the world. Things that happen in different locations around the world can be correlated. There's a weather phenomenon known as El Nino, which has different effects throughout the world's weather systems that are highly correlated with each other. So understanding those connections is critically important to better understanding the risks. And as I've already noted, many of the major cities around the world are located in coastal regions. Um, You just have to look at a city like San Francisco, for example, anybody who's travelled there will know that most of the road and railway system, airports and indeed power stations in San Francisco are located on the coast. It's a city that is very vulnerable to sea level rise. Across Asia, it's already estimated that 150 million people are exposed to coastal flooding and with just a 30 centimetre rise in sea levels, it's estimated that that number of people would double. And that's before taking into account of the population changes, which are such that more and more people are moving into cities, those cities in coastal regions. The final category that I wanted to talk about was what's called here large-scale singular events. Particularly in the polar regions, there's a risk of very large-scale abrupt changes occurring. This here is a map of Antarctica. I thought, since I worked for the British Antarctic Survey, I ought to at least have a small competition to this giant Arctic map. This whole region here, known as West Antarctica, It's covered in an ice sheet which we know is vulnerable to disintegration. It's not so much that it might melt from above, but that the warmer waters might encroach underneath it. Indeed, there are some indications that some of the key glaciers that feed this ice sheet may already be in irreversible retreat. If ice is floating on, water and it melts it doesn't raise sea levels but this ice is sat on land if this ice sheet collapse then eventually it is estimated it would contribute three meters to sea level rise which would bring the sea to our doorstep here in Cambridge completely change global coastlines and over a time scale that we simply don't know it may be hundreds of years we're not sure Very major changes to the ice sheets have been occurring in recent years. This is the Wilkins Ice Sheet, which is located around here. And this is video shot by one of my colleagues as that ice sheet collapsed in a matter of weeks a number of years ago. To give you an idea of scale, this is the height of a 20-story building. And as you'll be aware, much of the ice is actually below sea level. The whole size of this was something like four times the size of Greater London, as they say collapsed in a matter of weeks. And the polar regions, very large changes can occur quickly that have very large global impacts. And it's not just West Antarctica that we're concerned about. If we go back to the, to the map of the Arctic here, we're also concerned about Greenland. The huge ice sheets that sat on top of Um, Greenland is also susceptible to climate change. If we go back into the past and look at times when the climate has been much warmer in the past, when we believe the climate was not much more than 1.5, maybe 2 degrees warmer, well within the range of the future projections of temperature increase, we know that Greenland has not always been covered in ice. If Greenland ice sheet melted entirely, that would contribute seven meters to sea level rise, again completely changing the face of the Earth. Another major concern in the Arctic is that there's significant amounts of methane stored in frozen ground either on the land or in in the bottom of the ocean in the Arctic. Methane is particularly potent greenhouse gas and there's significant concern that as temperatures warm, some of that methane may, may be released into the atmosphere. So that's some of the risks, some of the projections as to what might happen into the future. That then turns to the final topic, which is what might we do about it? Now, there's a very useful simplification that can be made in terms of trying to understand future projections and what we would need to do to move more on a blue path than a red path. And that is that the temperature increase that is anticipated is directly related to the total amount of carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere over the whole of time. So we can say, on the basis of the science, um, that for a likely chance of staying below two degrees temperature increase, which is following the blue future, then there is a certain amount of carbon dioxide over the whole of time that we can emit into the atmosphere. and That amounts to about 3,000 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, it turns out that we have already put about 2,000 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, so we've used up about two-thirds of our budget. It is also the case that our, our current rate of global emissions we're putting about 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year. And so that leaves a rather simple um, bit of arithmetic to work out how long we have at our current levels of global emissions before we have used up our entire budget to stay below 2 degrees centigrade. We have less than about 30 years left at our current rates of emissions. If we wanted to keep temperatures even lower than two degrees centigrade, we would have even less time at our current rates of emissions. And for those who are more motivated by financial numbers, these numbers have been translated into um, the amount of current proven reserves of coal, coal, oil and gas that that means cannot be used because there is much more than a thousand billion tonnes of carbon dioxide in the current proven reserves of fossil fuels. and The estimated value put on that is about 20 trillion dollars of unburnable carbon, which people use to suggest that certain um, industries are overvalued because they're treating as assets um, things that they could never use if we are to stay in a two-degree world. This is what global emissions of carbon dioxide have looked like over the last couple of decades. And actually, a positive news story in all of this is that the increase in carbon dioxide emissions has been somewhat leveling off, particularly due to actions in China. So although carbon dioxide emissions are at record high, They don't appear to be increasing at the fast rate that they were previously. The other bit of good news from last year was the Paris Agreement, which I think was unexpected in its boldness in terms of the statements that um, were agreed to. The key aspect of the Paris Agreement was this, Article 2, and, and I'll read it out. It said, this agreement, in enhancing the implementation of the convention, this was the um, Convention on Climate Change from back in 1992, including its objectives, aims to strengthen the global response to the threat of climate change in the context of sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty, including by holding temperature increase in the global uh, increasing the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. That 1.5 degrees centigrade statement came as a surprise to observers who didn't think that the world would agree to such ambitious change. The Paris Agreement came into force this last year, November the 4th, um, when sufficient number of countries had signed it to trigger it coming into force. It's the case that the pledges that countries have put in place so far are not sufficient to meet the ambition that's outlined here, but there is a process of review um, every so many years with the um, intention of countries increasing their level of ambition. We of course wait to see what the incoming President of the United States um, does in response to all of this. And I just wanted to outline the scale of this challenge of meeting this objective set out in the Paris Agreement. These are the UK emissions for 2013 of um, greenhouse gases divided up into different sectors. You can see that the biggest contributor came from the power sector, transport sector being incredibly important, buildings, heating heating in particular of your buildings, has a significant impact, and then industrial processes are another big contributor, followed by a set of other sectors. To meet the conditions of the Paris Agreement, and to do its per capita fair share, the United Kingdom would have to reduce its emissions by at least 80% by 2050, and indeed that's written into the Climate Change Act. It's a legal requirement for us to do so. That means reducing our emissions by that. You can see that no single sector is going to do that. Just us all moving to electric vehicles would not be sufficient. Just um, us decarbonizing our um, electricity system would not be sufficient. Every single sector needs transformational change. Now, you can look at that as a, as a real threat, a real risk, or you can look at it as a real opportunity, and there's huge innovation going on in each of these different sectors to try to respond to this challenge. It is a huge opportunity for developing technologies to drive forward low carbon and climate resilient growth. Now one of the people who was really instrumental in helping to bring clarity to this very complex problem was David Mackay. David sadly passed away last year. He was a fellow of Darwin College and an inspiration and mentor to, to many of us. I'd like to, to dedicate this lecture to David's memory, but I also want to um, pay tribute to some of his legacy. And I think one of the most powerful aspects of his legacy was his insistence that in this complex debate, the numbers had to add up. I'm sure many of you are aware of his book that he wrote, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, and there is an online incarnation of that in the form of a calculator that you can go and play with being the supreme leader either of this country or of the world and look at how you would make changes to the global system in terms of um, energy use, in terms of energy supply in terms of land use, in terms of the way in which transport is done. Um, And look to see whether or not you could find ways to make changes to meet the emissions reductions that are required to stay within a blue two degrees future world. There was a report that was put out last year based on the global calculator that David was instrumental in developing called Prosperous Living for the World in 2050, um, which provided some insights from that global calculator. And these were some of the conclusions. The first one is that it is physically possible that all 10 billion people that are estimated to be living on the planet in 2050 could eat well, indeed travel more, live in more comfortable homes, while at the same time reducing emissions to a level to be consistent with a reasonable chance, 50% chance of two degrees warming. But to do so, we would need to transform the technologies and the fuels that we use. And we would also need to make smart use of our limited land resources and expand forests, um, by some margin. So it's not impossible, but it's difficult. And it undoubtedly requires political leadership to undertake such transformational change. Just as one small example, the amount of carbon dioxide emitted per unit of electricity globally would need to fall by at least 90% by 2050 to meet this, um, to meet this goal, essentially decarbonising the electricity supply. And um, if we just think about our own lives here in the United Kingdom, we may be on a trajectory to move towards electric vehicles. Um, for electric vehicles to have a significant positive difference, that also means decarbonising the electricity supply. But if you think back to the graph that I showed of UK emissions, things like heating our homes, something that David Mackay was particularly um, vocal about the importance of finding ways to um, reduce our use of energy to heat our homes, it's very difficult to find ways of decarbonising our heating in the United Kingdom. David was very keen on... Um, trying to promote heat pumps, which would again be um, one significant contribution while we also to decarbonise our electricity system. So this is a challenge. Can we find ways to transition to a low carbon climate resilient future? Can we do so in a way that um, capitalises on the innovation potential that's inherent in this country. If we do, there's significant opportunities for improved quality of life. A lot of the benefits um, that are accrued in terms of climates are also benefits to other aspects. So for example, if you improve um, air pollution, you have both climate benefits and also health benefits. Um, There are other ways in which you can also find across the whole system benefits in, in terms of the economy or benefits in terms of the environment um, associated with changes that you might want to adopt. So I think there is a strong potential for a greener, cleaner, more prosperous future. But it does require leadership to take us there. This is one of the most distributed photos. It comes from the Apollo mission, Apollo 17, in 1972. It was the first image from space, full image of the the Earth, taken from uh, 45,000 kilometres. And what's rather amazing is that you can see the weather systems in this photograph around the world. What's even more amazing is that our actions, switching on the lights, turning on the heating, driving here this evening, are having the impact of changing those weather systems. It's sort of incredible to look at this fragile earth and think that we can be, through our behaviour, influencing it, and yet the evidence is clear that we are. But the fact that we have been able to influence at a planetary scale I think in itself shows that we have the ability to prevent, to reverse that influence at a planetary scale, but it's beholden on each of us individually and collectively to ensure that that happens. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. You've given us a great deal to consider in the, the scale of the challenges that our societies face in the you know, immediate years in our children's and grandchildren's lives. It's, it's very considerable. Now, 2016, you know, ended some three weeks ago, the warmest global year on record much shorter timescale. We're now only two hours into, you know, a new political climate. And in that regard, I think it's really important not to forget that everyone who sort of cherishes the the honesty and the integrity of scientific inquiry and, and the search for the solutions that we need, everyone is going to need a great deal of support and clear, strong public voices through the coming years because what is happening now um, around the world is not going to make any of this any easier. So you've seen some images of the camera up there of of this uh, map of the Arctic. If you would like to come and look at it, um, come up on the stage, you're, you're most welcome. However, there is a proviso you must remove your shoes. We request that you remove your shoes. Socks and uh, stockings are permitted. Now, if that's you know a bit concerning, we have some socks. <laughs> Not just one pair of socks, uh, Canada UK Foundation socks with polar bears on in, in Cambridge blue. Um, so there are steps either side of the stage and people will be able to g- give you pairs of socks. Um, should you you want to take them. But to return to our lecture series, I mean next week's lecture takes us um, into black swan territory when uh, Professor Nazim Nicholas Taleb from New York University will be speaking on extreme events and how to live with them. And we hope to see you then. But let's end by thanking Emily very, very much indeed.